Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. All right, good afternoon, everyone. Good to be back together again. It's, I wasn't here last week, actually, for service. We were in Toronto, so maybe it's me that's back together again. You guys covered that last week. So as Dylan said, it's five days until trumpets, 25th day of the sixth month. The seventh month arrives on Wednesday evening at sunset, and the excitement of the fall festivals begins. Let's go to First Thessalonians as we begin. I want to go back to my message of a month ago just by way of introduction and remind us when we began preparing for the festivals a month or so ago, in light of the evangelism seminars we saw on the place of safety and the rapture that took us through passages like First Thessalonians 4 and 5, we came here to the conclusion of this letter, beginning in verse 12. We noted as well that the conclusions of all of the epistles general epistles, the ones that were not written to specific individuals, actually had the similar con- con- conclude- concluding remarks around expectations placed upon the brethren. And here, in, and again, in light of this letter about the day of the Lord, talking about the return of Christ, which is what we're about to begin foreshadowing and looking forward to this week, is this, these concluding remarks, verse 12. And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. And we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all, see that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. Rejoice always, Pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, test all things, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Considering those three general categories of our interaction with leadership, how we care for each other in the body, and how we stay committed to God and to Jesus Christ, Those are God's expectations for us in light of the lead up to and becoming more important as we get closer to the return of Jesus Christ. Verse 23, which I wanted to conclude with in this message, in that message, but uh, didn't, uh, brings this all together by saying, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who will also do it. And again, this notation of our, our focus to become complete, to work towards perfection. When we break it down, really what was on Paul's mind at, at this time and what he foresaw as issues for the body were these three items, how we interact with leadership, how we care for the brethren, and how we remain committed to God and to his son. We looked at that all in the light of preparing for the fall holy days and our opportunity to work on those things as we interact together with the large number of opportunities that we will be together during those days. As we consider the Apostle John, he was a fascinating leader of the New Testament church. He wrote 20, by word volume, actually, I looked this up, by word volume, he wrote 20% of the New Testament. Can anyone tell me who wrote the most of the New Testament? No. By word volume, it was Luke. Luke wrote the most, by word volume. Paul wrote the most books. Luke wrote by volume. I was shocked, too. I was looking for Paul, and I didn't know. I thought John would be second and completely forgot that Luke wrote Luke and Acts. I don't know how we forgot that. We've just studied that, but... Luke wrote both Luke and Acts, and by word volume, he wrote 27%. Paul wrote 23%. 
John, though, wrote all of his writings after A.D. 80. By There's a wide variety of when he wrote between A.D. 80 and A.D. 100, likely closer into the 10 years between 85 and 95 A.D. But scholars pretty much agree it was after A.D. 80, and some have him uh, still around to about A.D. 100. That, of course, varies by what scholar you follow. But let's look at A.D. 85 to 95 being something that everyone pretty much could, could agree closely to. So consider all of what John wrote, 20% of the New Testament, being written generally between 85 and 95 A.D. Nice little facts, but let's consider what that, what that means. He was the last of living apostles by many, many years. By all accounts, Luke died around 84 A.D. So when John begins writing, everyone's gone. All of those that, as we, as we heard read in the scriptures, in the, the scripture reading, when he said that which, we have, which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, there was actually no we anymore. There was just me. That was all that was left. By all accounts, by if we take if we take the the timing of, of what the scholars say, he was the last of the living witnesses. Jerusalem had fallen ten to fifteen years prior. Again, let's let's we'll call it eighty five A.D. that he began writing, just for argument's sake. Jerusalem had fallen fifteen years pr- previous to this. Persecution was rampant and worsening, as we know. It was getting worse and worse and worse, and John was the last man standing, for lack of a better word. When we go back to John 21, and we consider putting yourself in John's place, in the area of Asia, generally in the area of Ephesus, this late time, when he was writing, obviously, he in later years was in prison, on the island of Patmos, we know, is where he wrote the book of Revelation from. So consider all those settings. And for pretty much all of his, his closest compatriots, Peter, Paul, they had been gone for 20 years, long gone for 20 years. James had been, James, the brother of Christ, the leader of the, New, the Jerusalem church, he'd been gone even longer than that, 30, 35 years. And John, here he was, still faithful, and hadn't written, at least from a, uh, a canon standpoint, hadn't written anything yet. He writes his gospel account, and in light of all of that setting, we go to verse 22. And recalling back, as John now begins to write, Jesus said to him, If I will that he remains till I come, what is that to you? We go through the gospel account, and that's kind of nice little wording where it was between Peter. Peter, and we know Peter was told he was going to be crucified. And Christ was saying, Peter was worried about John. John's writing this almost 20 years after Peter was long gone, looking back to what Christ had said. If I remain, if I let him remain till, till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. John followed those words because he was the only one left of all of those original apostles, those original witnesses. All that he had lived through since being selected by Christ to follow him. Think of, think of all that he had lived through. Consider when he began writing, 85 to 95 AD, we're talking 50 to 60 years since Christ was crucified. Can anyone, has anyone here, was anyone here, think of, think of the Korean War. Let's talk about today. Let's go back to the Korean War. That is like someone amongst us talking to us about what it was like to fight during or to live during the Korean War. There are very few that could do that. That is what we're looking at here when we consider the Apostle John writing to us in his gospel, his epistle, and in Revelation. This is a man who'd been around for a long, long time and had watched his band of brothers fall by the wayside, become martyred, have to die for Christ, and he's still kicking, and he's still going. And the letters that have been written are being passed around through the churches. Everybody is reading them. And he still hasn't written a thing. He 
was Christ's closest friend. He had a very special bond with Christ. But this is 60 years ago. This is 60 years ago. He was given the responsibility to care for Mary when Christ died. He helped launch the New Testament church with Peter. We, go, we can read that in Acts 2. But he seems to have always taken a back seat. Peter was the voice. He was the charismatic leader. He, the, the focus of spreading the gospel to the Gentiles, that went through Paul. James, the brother of Christ, as we said, he led the ecclesia in Jerusalem. Others were called upon to die horrible deaths, but not John. Persecuted for sure, but he was not called upon to die a horrible death as the others had at this point. He was persecuted, he was imprisoned, but he lived out his life to a very ripe old age, likely living well past 60 years after Christ had died. A seemingly quiet, very humble apostle who stayed the course for 60 years while all of his, what I call his band of brothers, they all died decades earlier, and he remained true. He remained faithful. Consider what he did in his last days when we're all looking forward to retirement and taking our foot off the gas. John, in his last days, wrote a gospel account. He wrote three epistles, and he wrote a most intriguing book of prophecy, the book of Revelation. All of this being the finishing touches on the canon that you hold in your head. And he did this when he should have just said, okay, I've, my work is done. Let me pass this off. And he wrote, we consider all of the magnificent writers of Scripture, but consider John, who wrote gospel, epistles, and prophecy. That's pretty impressive through, through, through this humble individual who had a wide range of experiences to draw on. As we you're in John 21, stay there. Consider that all that context we've talked about. Verse 24 says, This is the disciple who testifies of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. He was there. It is true. And then he concludes, and it's been one of my, the most fascinating verses that, of, as I read Scripture. There are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. We read over that, but when we consider his life, 60 years spent serving God after the death of Jesus Christ, 20 years after the death of most of the folks that he, he and always says we, we were there. But when he was writing, there wasn't a we, it was an I. But he always says we. He always says we. With all that had been written before him by servants who were long, long gone, what was there left for him to write? They, they'd all written, they'd, you'd think they would have written it all. As we continue to prepare for the feast days, which are now upon us, which represent the return of the Christ, with the return of Christ, as well as the events that follow the return of Christ. What did the last living apostle have to say, have left to say, to help guide the body of Christ as in their preparation, as we prepare for Christ's return, as John was winding down? What, and what possibly could there left to be said? What I'd like to do today, and we'll carry this over into next week, is to study his epistles. We're doing a study on Revelation. That's a, a separate account and and. If you haven't tuned in, we're, we're through chapter 1. took two, two studies to get through chapter 1 on Wednesday nights. We cover the gospel various points. What I'd like to do here is to look at his epistles. We're going to begin with the first epistle today and find out what new teachings could he possibly have given us in his final letters that hadn't been talked about before. And what last message to the body would he leave with us? Let me, as we begin, as I like to do for myself, I will give you the conclusion before we start. There were no new teachings. There was nothing new. His message was, everything you have been taught by everyone else who was there, who you've read, 
is true. I've read them all. I've, I've seen these letters passed through the congregations. It's true. I've heard them speak. I was there. I can back this up. There's no one left that can say this, but I was there, and I assure you it was true. And despite the years that have passed, and we flip through the Bible, read it through quickly, and we don't realize that 20, 25 years passed from the time Paul and Peter died to the time that John began was writing his accounts. Truth hasn't changed. Everything they said remains true today, is what he was writing. And we're going to talk about it again. Much like we talked about in the youth study, as we wrapped up this year's Old Testament, we read, we've read it three times, and it's the same thing. But, oh, wow, I didn't see this before. It's not new, but I didn't see it in this light before. Or I'm still learning over here. John was there. He saw it. He lived it. The redemptive plan of God had, has been in production at the time of John's writing for thousands of years. It's the same one that everyone else has written about, is what, he was write, is what he was saying in his writing. You go to Moses, you go to the scribes, you go to the prophets, you go to the apostles, you go to Luke, you go to James, you go to Jude. We've all been telling you the exact same thing. Expectations have never changed, and we practice becoming like Jesus Christ through the messages of the holy days. What we're going to see when we go through this letter is really what we've been reading and hearing and studying for years. And what we've been reading and studying this year and what we continue to study in the years back and what we'll continue to study going forward. And it's all about continuing to prepare for the return of Christ, to become more like him, to become more God-like, more Christ-like, and to prepare to be the spotless bride of Christ. And when we go through here, what we're going to see is all these messages intermingled with festival, uh, festival topics. And we're going to see that it makes sense. The plan of God, as we know it, is taught to us through our keeping of the holy days. So if we're preparing for Christ's return, trumpets, that's a festival message. The, the preparation is, all about, is covered throughout the messages of the holy days. And all John is doing here is I have one last chance before I go after everyone else is gone, I'm going to tell you the same thing. It's all true. It's all true, and it hasn't changed. So, so be bold and be steadfast and become more like God. So let's dive into this in the first epistle, chapter 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes. I heard it, I saw it. Actually, not I. Again, the humble servant that he was, it was always we. And we does something else. We, t- we tells the audience that I'm not the only witness. All those other witnesses you've read about, it's the same thing. You go read, read what they wrote, read what I wrote, write, and you'll see... It is a consistent message. But we saw it. We heard Christ speaking to us. We saw him. We lived it. Which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. We actually touched the Savior. We know he was here. The life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us, that which we have seen and heard, and we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you, that your joy may be full. And when we go through this, and what we're going to see as we go through, go through this letter, it's like we can reference the teachings from the other writers to almost every point John makes. We're not, for time's sake, we're not going to do it. But as we, as we consider, think of other scriptures that come to mind, of the other writers, to these points that John is making. Because the narrative never changes. It's one thing that we've learned over the, over the years is that the narrative is the same. They all saw it. They all believed it. And John here is saying, let me tell you one last time. So considering, let's go to 1 Corinthians 15. Put a marker there in 1 John, obviously. 
if you have one. If not, we'll be going back to it anyways. First John, First Corinthians 15. As we consider John's introduction to his letter. That which, and as you turn there, I'll remind us what we just read in First John. That which we have seen and heard declare to you that you may also have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we have, our hands have handled concerning the word of life. We go to 1 Corinthians 15, written decades earlier, verse 12. If Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. Again, this is not something we haven't looked at, we haven't studied, taken apart, broken down. We understand what this means. But the concern of this false teaching infiltrating the church and derailing God's people has always been an issue for the apostles. It was an issue for Paul. It was an issue for John. And John, in his, his introduction, refers to this. Talks about how our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. That the Jesus that they are talking about, that we saw, that we heard, that we witnessed, that we touched, was the Son of God. And it's like he is saying, don't ever forget that. It was an issue 25 years ago. It likely still remains an issue. At some point, somewhere. And he introduces his letter simply by saying, our fellowship with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ who came, who we saw, who we touched, who we listened to, who spoke to us, who we we heard speak, we watched. He was the Son of God, and he was here, and we saw it. Acts 4. Acts 4. Again, scriptures that... There's nothing new here. John, as he's writing this, can think back to the beginning of the New Testament church on Pentecost. Again, a Holy Day message, part of this thread that runs through the Holy Days. Talking here, as we read in First John, about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and how eternal life was manifested to us through him. And he can, he can recall way back to the first Pentecost, some 50 to 60 years prior, where Peter, in verse 8, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means has he been, by what means he has been made well? Let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead by him, this man stands here alone before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So when John introduces his letter and talks about this eternal life that was manifested to us from the Father, through his Son, Jesus Christ, he's thinking 60 years prior to watching this all happen. And then after Christ leaves, being granted the Holy Spirit, and then seeing Peter stand up and preach this message where thousands were baptized after that. And note back in verse 6, he was there. And it came to pass on the next day, verse 5, that their rulers, elders and scribes, as well as Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, as many were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. Peter did the speaking, but John, John was there. John was there amongst them. And he, he witnessed this. He was there as a support for Peter for sure. Uh, verse 13, we saw the boldness of Peter and John and unperceived. They were uneducated and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men. And they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. Sixty years ago, they were witnesses for Christ. And John continues way forward to say, we were there. We were there. We saw it. We saw him. We heard him. We touched him. We handled him. The Son of God was here. And in my, in my last writings, 
don't forget that this is true. We saw it. And we see that a habit of, the, of some of these writers. Luke was, Luke was famous for this in both of his accounts. Let's go to Luke 1 as a reminder. And why these books are canonized is because they are from people who witnessed this. This is, first, this is a first-hand account. The beginning of Luke 1, inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered to us, it seemed good to me also having a perfect understanding of all things from the very first to write to you an orderly account. And we, of course, studied that last uh, earlier this year. And in Acts, you can, we don't need to read Acts 1, but uh, Luke does a similar witnessing in Acts 1 when he, he began that book. Back to 1 John. We see here the depth of, these, of, of, of the teaching that John is reminding everybody here. That our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And that these things we write to you, that your joy may be full. That life was manifested, we have seen, and we bear witness and declare to you that the eternal life which was with the Father was manifested to us. We can go back to Philippians 2. We don't need to turn there. There's so many things we can turn to. But Paul telling years earlier about how the Son of God came in the form of man, took on the form of his creation. John writes later in Revelation how he came to tabernacle with us, and he'll come to tabernacle with us again. This is the message of the Holy Days, bright and clear through the Passover, through the, the, the Feast of Tabernacles, through Pentecost, all of these things. Back to verse 3. That which we have seen and heard declared to you that you may have fellowship with us. This fellowship that he's talking about is referred to a little bit earlier. This is eternal life. And we have it through God the Father and through Jesus Christ. Let's go back to John 17. John 17. We read in Acts that there was through one name that we can be saved, and that is through Jesus Christ. But here John goes deeper in his gospel account. And all he, all he did here was... Write Christ's prayer during the evening of the, of the Lord's Supper of the New Testament Passover. After he had talked to them, they had the New Testament Passover, he spoke to them, and then he prayed for them to God here in chapter 17. And is teaching them through his prayer. Verse 1, Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that your son may also glorify you, as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. The whole purpose of the holy days, this Christ coming in the form of man and dying at Passover, was so that man could receive, have an opportunity to receive eternal life by becoming part of the covenant people. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent, that we may have fellowship with God the Father and with Jesus Christ his Son, as he writes in 1 John. The same message all the way back, and all he's saying is this is what Christ prayed about. He prayed that you would have fellowship with the Father and with the Son. Because eternal life is knowing God and knowing Jesus Christ. That's what it's all about. Verse 21, drop down to verse 21. Again, talking about this fellowship with the Father and with the Son. Verse 20. I do not pray for these alone, but also, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And that's what John is saying. I'm just preaching the word. I'm just telling you everything I saw and I heard to fulfill what Christ is saying here, that they will continue to, to talk about this. That they may be one as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. That they may also be one in us that the world may believe that you sent me and the glory which you gave me I have given them that they may be one just as we are one. Let them be at one with us. It sounds repetitive, but there's a reason why we repeat these celebrations. Again, this fellowship, when we see John here talking about the fellowship with the Father and the Son, 
we see atonement coming in here, where we are become completely at one with God. Not since Genesis 2 has man been truly and completely at one with God. Completely at one, without an outside influence, without having to battle the outside influences. When Let's go back to Genesis 1 and see here. Remind ourselves, because this is the whole, again, this whole storyline being played out through the holy days, and all John is doing is rehashing it again. And that's all the apostles did, was continue to circle back on these items, because as we talked about in the youth study today, the cycle that God's people have gone through in forgetting and needing to be reminded. Interesting here that we see the progress of man being still at one with God. Verse 31, Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. It was very good. Creation is complete. Man is complete. Then chapter verse 18 of chapter 2, it was very good, but God says now it's not good that man should be alone. There's something missing. I will make a helper comparable to him. I will make him a partner. And then verse 25, and there they were, both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. We talked a little bit about, a lot of it this year, about this, this fall of man here. And not since here, at least in the record, we don't know what time it took from chapter 2 to chapter 3. But not since here, when they were both naked and not ashamed, has man been completely at one with God. And John, in his account, is looking forward to that time when we will be completely at one with him. Again, part of the narrative all pictured by these holy days that we're about to celebrate. Back to 1 John, verse 4, chapter 1. And these things which we write to you, which we write to you, and all he's saying here is I'm simply adding on. This is not my account. This is our account. We were all there. You've seen our letters go by. I'm simply adding to it. I'm adding my voice to say everything that they said is true. That your joy may be full. This life in Christ will complete you and make you full. And we see that time and time and time again. We read verse 23 of 1 Thessalonians 5, where, where where Paul at the end of that letter, talked about being complete. Philippians 1. John is just rehashing some of these same things that the other writers have have written. Philippians 1, verse 3. That your joy may be full. This life in Christ, when truly lived, when completely followed, will complete you and make you full. Philippians 1, uh, verse 3. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, Always in every prayer of mine, making request for you all with with, you, with joy, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Just as it is right for me to think of you all, because I have you in my heart, and as much as both in my chains and in defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you with all the affection of Jesus Christ. And here Paul is, is just talking about how this work that God is beginning will complete you and will make you joyful and, and, and complete, and complete that, that process and return us to that time where we are completely at one with God. Complete at the return of Christ. These holy appointed times that we keep are not just days for us to fit into our very busy schedules. Their fulfillment is the key to life and to life more abundantly. As Jesus Christ, we won't turn there, but John 10.10, where he said, I I came to provide life and to give it more abundantly. These appointed times that we keep, their fulfillment of those days is the key to life. Back to 1 John. We'll pick up the next section, verse 5. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness 
at all. This is the this is the message. Again, I keep focusing on the we, but that's that is part and parcel here of why he is just one of the witnesses. The last one, but one of them. This is the message that we have heard. We heard from him. Not just something secondhand that we heard going around the, 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 the coffee urn at, at work or the water cooler. We heard from him. And we're declaring what he said to you. And he's putting a cap on the writings and preachings of all who were there. They're all gone now, but he's putting a cap on their writings and their preachings. And in his ever humble way, it's always we, never me. So let's continue watching him tie this narrative of the scriptures back to the holy days. Let's continue in verse 6. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So right away, leaping from the pages is talk of Passover, talk of unleavened bread, being relieved of our sins, being made clean, being made whole. And obviously for our sakes, carrying over into the message of Pentecost where we receive the Holy Spirit and we have fellowship with one another. We become part of a body that is bigger than ourselves. But he talks here about light and dark. Let's go to Matthew 5. We'll turn to the Sermon on the Mount. Because he said, I'm going to declare the things which we heard him say. He told us. So let's go back to when he told them. Matthew 5. which we see here was John's first real foray into the deep teachings of Christ. Part of the disciples that followed him up on the, followed him up and came to him, chapter 5, verse 1, seated with him up on the Mount of Olives, or up in the mountains, not the Mount of Olives, up in the mountains. Verse 14, part of Christ's teachings that John has heard Way, way back, now we're at the beginning of Christ's ministry, so we're looking at probably 60 to 65 years henceforth when he put that pen to paper. He still is tapping into those teachings of Christ. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works, and glorify your Father in heaven. Darkness can't exist where there is true light. It seems obvious. That's, that's stating the complete obvious. But Christ used it as, the, as a teaching point, and John is continuing to just reflect those teachings that he heard from Christ so many decades before. We drop down to chapter 6. Verse 22. The lamp of the body is the eye, and therefore your eye is good, and your whole body will be full of light. As God shines his light through through us. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. Darkness and light cannot coexist. It is either light or it is dark. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. We can't play both sides and be right with God. And that's what John is referring to back here in that next section of his text that we just read. Let's go to John 8. Look a little bit here at this light of the world that he was writing about in his first epistle.
as you turn there, I'll remind you what we read in 1 John, that God is light, and in him is no darkness. And again, reminding us that, that fellowship with the Father and his Son, how the Son reflects the Father. So we go to John 8. First, and again, famous passages. We've read them time and time and time again. Then Jesus spoke to them again, verse 12, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Again, talking about how Christ is the light of this world. When was this message conveyed? Go back to chapter 7, verse 37. On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried aloud. This is festival language. This is festival talk. Chapter 8, verse 1. In the morning, the early morning, he went again into the temple because they were still there and taught the people and then taught them that he is the light of, light of the world. This message was conveyed, this light of when we read, when we hear this message of Christ being the light of the world, this light and darkness, we tie this back to the Feast of Tabernacles and the last great day. And we see how Christ is the light of this world. And he taught that during that time. Let's go back to 1 John. We'll move on into chapter 2. And again, we could break this apart even deeper. We could pull in other scriptures. We certainly don't have time for that. Chapter 2. We start getting into deep, deep, more deeply into these festival themes. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. So that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, when you do sin, if you happen to sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. There's a lot in those two verses that just that we could spend hours on just talking about festival themes there. We see Passover. We see unleavened bread. We see the fact that Christ himself is the righteous. He conquered the adversary, and he becomes Jesus Christ the righteous. Another name for him, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he now acts as an advocate before the Father. Remember the, the, the uh, curtain in the temple was torn asunder when Christ died. And we now have direct access to the Father. And there Christ is, and we see that. It, we won't have time to turn to any of those scriptures. But there is Christ beside the Father acting as an advocate on our behalf because he was here. He walked amongst us. He became, one of, he became part of his creation and walked amongst us. And all, again, something small here at the end, not for ours only, but also for the whole world. The whole world will have an opportunity to become part of the covenant people of God. Same message, but John is taking this time to write to us and remind us of these Holy Day themes. And that Christ is an advocate on our behalf. Let's go back to John 17. How does John know Christ was an advocate? For us, and it remains an advocate for us. Well, he told us that he was there, and he saw it, and he heard it. John 17. We go back to this prayer after the New Testament Passover was kept, after Christ calmed them as they were worried and fearful about the coming events. We'll pick up this up in verse 9. Remember, Christ is praying to the Father, but it's in front of them. He hasn't left them yet. He's still in front of them. So they are hearing him pray to the Father, and he, they hear him say this, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. John is hearing 60 years before that he is one of God's. He is a potential child of God. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world. I am leaving, but they are still here. And little did John know, he'd still be here 60 years later. But these are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father. Keep 
through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now, Holy Father, he calls him, I come to you, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Same message, verse 4, where their joy may be filled, they may be full. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. And I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. And John's life was a picture of God keeping him going. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So, Father, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, I also send, I have sent them into the world. And for their sakes... For their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they may be also sanctified for the truth. How could John tell the, the, the church? How could he go to the church and say, listen, if something happens and you drop the ball and you stumble, you have an advocate. Live, a, live your very best to follow God as best you can. But when you stumble, reach out for the advocate. Why? Because right there during the Passover, Christ was an advocate for him. He said, these are, these are yours, God. Please keep them. Please keep them safe. Help them, to, help, them to, help them to endure all that will be put towards them. Verse 3 of John, 1 John 2. Back to 1 John. Now by this we know him. By this we know that we know him. How do we know that we know him? If we keep his commandments. How do we know that we know Christ and we are part of his if we do what he says? That is not a new teaching. In fact, hold your place there. Let's go back to Matthew 5. Let's go back to Matthew 5. John heard this from the mouth of Christ himself. Do not think I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And then he hears a deeper teaching of what it really means to keep the law of God. We don't have time to go into that. But how do we know we know him? If we keep his commandments. What are those commandments? They're what everybody has been reading from time immemorial back to when God first gave them the law, which preceded Exodus, but when was codified with Moses. How do we keep his commandments? How is Christ going to help us keep his commandments? Let's go to John 14. John 14. Now we're talking Pentecost. Pentecost. John 14. How do we know we know him? John writes in his epistle, if we keep his commandments. Verse 15 of John 14, his gospel says, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, do what I say. He heard Christ back in, in his, in, I believe it was in Matthew, where he said, Lord, they say, Lord, Lord, you don't even do what I say. How can you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? Christ here on Passover evening saying, if you love me, Keep my commandments. Do what I say. Verse 25. These things I have spoken to you while present with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit that the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. How are we going to get this help? God, is, well, God sent us the Holy Spirit. That's the message of Pentecost. That's one of the messages of Pentecost. So when John continues to write here in his epistle and talk about we know that we know him because we keep his commandments, how do we know? Because he gave us his Holy Spirit and gave us an opportunity to be filled with his Holy Spirit to help us become perfect, to help us work towards that perfection. In fact, chapter John 16, let's move forward just a little bit. 
This was so important. This Holy Spirit, this message of this transition from the Feast of Love and Bread to the Feast of Pentecost, this was so important. In verse 7 of chapter 16, Christ tells them, and John was there and heard this, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. The helper will not come to you. So John was, John had lived this, had heard Christ talk about this. And as he said in, his, in that epistle, this is the message we have heard from him and we declare to you. And time and all we're doing is we're seeing the, the messages of the Holy Days being bolted onto this storyline that John is writing this capstone for, that everyone else has written, written about. Let's go back to 1 John 2. Verse 7, Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. And again, we just read Matthew 5, verse 17, that said the law has never changed. So the law of God, there's, there's nothing new in the law of God. He says here, I write no new commandments. God's law is eternal. It is everlasting. It is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The old commandment, is the word which you have heard from the beginning. Again, it teaches here with, uh, he says there is no new commandment, and then he goes on to say, again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. John simply is referring back to what he saw Jesus Christ, what he heard Jesus Christ tell them in John 13. John 13. At this very same Passover meal. John 13. You know the scripture well. John 13 verse 34. A new commandment I give to you. That you love one another. As I have loved you. That you also love one another. And by this all will know. That you are my disciples. If you have love one for another. So John is saying the law hasn't changed. When we read back what we read in First John. The law hasn't changed. But there's this new part that I'm going to teach you that Christ taught us, and that is love. That is to do it with love. Do it, learn this agape love and incorporate that into your law-keeping. And he was repeating Christ's words here. Let's go back to Jeremiah 31. Again, looking forward to looking back on when Jeremiah was looking forward to and foreshadowing the coming of this new covenant. And this new part wasn't a new law, but what we see here, the difference between the old covenant and the new, in Jeremiah 31, John is referencing back to there, verse 33, Jeremiah 31, again, nothing new, stuff we've circled back on time and time again. This is the covenant, Jeremiah 31, verse 33, that I will make with the house of Israel. Again, all the way back to talking about this, his covenant people. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law in their minds, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. He will write that on our hearts. Again, pointing towards the Feast of Pentecost, when this helper is being sent, how can we keep all this? We've tried for, for millennia to follow God, and we haven't been successful. What we're going to do is we're going to send you with the helper, the Holy Spirit, and we will, write, will allow me to write the law in your hearts, and you will see it from a different perspective. And, this, and I need to go so that I can give you this Holy Spirit. Again, all festival themes that John is simply rehashing and referring back to. First, let's go back to a second. First John 2. Pick it up in verse 9. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his, his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. 
how we treat one another, this was one of Paul's chief concerns in the lead up to the return of Christ that we read about back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. That we also read about in Matthew 24. We don't need to turn there, but where Christ himself is warning of the time preceding his return when the love of many will wax cold, leading to the betrayal within the body. These, this all points to the conditions of the body of Christ before the return of Jesus Christ that Paul spoke about, and 20 years later, John is speaking about. John, John points back to that same thing, that we can't be part of the body and have any inkling of hatred towards any member of the body. We can't say we're in and then be out, because we're serving one, we're trying to serve two masters, and we can't do that. And it's the same message. And that's why John says this, it's nothing new here. This is the same messages you've been hearing for decades that we have been saying because it came from Jesus Christ himself. And all I'm doing is I'm rehashing them here one final time. Then we move on the next few verses here. The, stay, the growth of the body, the condition of the body during the church era. What happens between Pentecost and the return of Christ? John talks about that here. In verse 12, I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. Lesson from Passover. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning, that Jesus Christ is God. Jesus Christ is God, the Son of God. He was there from the beginning. This plan has been invoked from the very beginning. Because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. Christ overcame the wicked one, and we can as well. This message of atonement. I write to you, little children, because you have known the Father. What an opportunity to know the Father. Why do we know the Father? Because Christ died, and that curtain in the, the Holy of Holies was torn in two that provided us direct access to the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the wicked one. Again, this, this state of being in overcoming until Christ returns. And we see this, these, these hints of these festival themes throughout here. You can read, we won't delve into that. We delved, in, we delved into this last time in our message on First Thessalonians, but the next three verses talk about the types of evil that there are that we must stay away from. So this continues to be a concern for the New Testament writers. And John adds it to his list of concerns, this concern for self. If you wanted to hear, John breaks it down into three, but really we're talking about the concern for self. We see John writing about we, we, we. Here he is saying, you want, you want to get off track? You want, you want to understand what real evil is? It's concern for self. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. All that taking us from his discussion that we talked about, the, the Passover, the, the unleavened bread, and the Pentecost themes, leading to verse 18, where he now says this, this, this condition of the church we've just read about in these eight or ten verses. Little children, verse 18, it is the last hour. We are coming right down to it now. We're coming down to it. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, and he spoke more about him in the book of Revelation. Even now, many antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were with us. Dropping to verse 20, but you have, you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. This helper that is with that, that that you have been anointed with, that came to, to Christ, had to go so that we could receive that helper. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and that the lie is no truth. So again, saying, this is not anything you don't know. I'm not trying to teach you anything new because there, there's nothing new I can tell you. We've covered it all over the course of the, the, the years and decades that we have been proclaiming the message of Jesus Christ. I'm writing to you, so that I can have one final stamp, an opportunity to stamp this and say, everything you've heard is true. Everything you've heard is true. None of it is a lie. Who is a liar but he who denies 
that Jesus is the Christ. Again, we covered that back in 1 Corinthians 15 when we talked about that. He is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. So again, looking forward here to the, the, the times that precede his return, there will be a concern that people will deny the Father and deny the Son. John here is adding his two cents on that same topic because the apostles were concerned that people would deny Jesus Christ and deny the Father because things will get tough. And it may be easier to betray God to save, to save ourselves a little bit of pain. Verse 24, let's drop down to verse 24. Therefore, let that abide in you which you have heard from the beginning. We want to endure to the end. We want to make it through. We want to, to honor all that the, the apostles and Jesus Christ have told us and the writers back through, through the rest of Scripture have told us that take us through the, the, the coming of Christ, his death, his resurrection, the, the coming of the Holy Spirit, the New Testament church, and that time that takes us through to his return that we're looking forward to celebrating this week. You want to survive that? You want to endure? Let that truth abide in you that you have heard from the very beginning. Don't let that go. Don't get tossed about with every wind of doctrine we, we read in other places that Peter wrote about. If what you have heard from the beginning abides in you, you will also abide in the Son and in the Father. We want to get to that point, that, that true state of atonement, where we abide in true oneness with the Father and the Son. Cling to that truth. Never deny it. Don't let it go. And this is the promise that he has promised us. What is all this about? This promise of eternal life. The same message we have been reading back from since Genesis 1, when God wanted to provide us with eternal life, and we turned our back. This, and then the, the plan of God, as pictured by the holy days, kicks into effect. These things I have written to you, verse 26, concerning those who try to deceive you. But the anointing which you have received from him abides in you. Christ is in us because the Holy Spirit dwells within us. And again, there's, there's no getting around tying this back to, to the lessons from the, the annual festivals. And you do not need that anyone teach you, but as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you will abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, and you know that everyone who practices righteousness is, is born of him, our actions now will determine our participation at his return. What we do now, what we do with this truth, what we do with this endurance, the, the, what we need to endure, what we do with the Holy Spirit within us, perfecting us, bringing us more t- towards being like Christ, will help us endure these things that will precede his return. And it has everything to do with determining our participation at his return. Will, when we see Christ coming on this Feast of Trumpets, when we see him come down from the heavens, will we have confidence and we can't wait for him to get here? Or will we, will we feel shame that we've left something undone, that we could have been better? Will we, when he comes, will we have full confidence that we will rise and meet him in the air? Or will there be some doubt because we're not sure we've done what we needed to do? That's where John is pointing the, 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 the body here. Get busy, get active, making sure that when Christ comes, it is, it is 100% all in, that we cannot wait for We have been waiting so long for him to get here, and we are sure that our actions, that our, our determination, that the Holy Spirit that has been within us has brought us to this point, that we have full confidence we will rise and meet him in the air. Let's stop for now. Uh, we'll pick this up again next week. We'll move a little bit faster next week. Um, it was important to set the stage for this. Uh, this is not a line upon, it's not designed to be a line upon line study as some of the other studies are. But John's epistle is a fascinating recap of the narrative of the Bible. We talked about re- recapping the narrative here in our youth study. His epistle is a fascinating recap and it is 
appropriately a capstone to the rest of Scripture. Written decades later, once he, once as he remembers the words of Christ, that he may be here on, the, on this earth a whole lot longer than you guys are. And if that's fine, that's his business. But nothing John wrote is new. I'm not here to teach you anything new. We can clearly see the message to the church is defined here through the meanings of the holy days. And that's why it is so exciting to get to these days that we can rehearse these again and remind ourselves of the plan of God, our part in it, all that we need to do to stay part of this so that when Christ comes, we won't, be sh- we won't have doubt or shame, but we will have full confidence that he is finally here and we have done all we needed to do with his help, with the help of the Holy Spirit, that we will rise and meet him in the air, that our joy may be full.